Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 27, 2011, and my guest is Bruce Meyer, the McCormick Foundation professor in the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Bruce, welcome to Econ Talk. Glad to be here. Our topic for today is inequality and the standard of living of the average American. You hear a lot uh, in books, in the in the blogosphere, among pundits, that the middle class is being hollowed out, that incomes for all but the top 1% or maybe the top 20% are stagnating, that the gap between rich and poor has grown inexorably, that the American dream is dead, that America is no longer the land of opportunity. Particularly alarming is the claim that these changes have occurred at a time until recently of great growth in national income. Very healthy growth in the U.S. in per capita income between the early 1980s and the mid-2000s. Yet the claim is made that the rising tide did not lift all boats. Rather, it only lifted the big, rich yachts. The dinghies of the poor and the middle class didn't share in that tide of improved material well-being. What are your thoughts on these claims? They're basically wrong. And that's what... uh uh, ten years of research by myself and James Sullivan at Notre Dame has shown. Um, if you measure incomes uh, better, accounting properly for inflation, median incomes have gone up by about 50% since 1980. And if you look at consumption, it's gone up by a similar amount over that whole period, though exactly uh, when it went up uh, is slightly different from the income pattern. And you're going to argue that that is just a, a correction for a, mis- a mistaken measure of inflation? On the, well, let's stick with the income side first. We'll come to consumption sure. later. Inflation is probably the most important reason, but it's also... Uh, the picture looks much better if you account for what people are actually able to spend, which is the income that's left after taxes. So taxes also matter quite a bit at the median, uh, particularly in the 2000s. If you account for uh, taxes, the median has gone up much more than if you if you don't. And that is because uh, of... Um, Cuts in in income taxes in the uh, uh, in two thousand and one and two thousand and three. But uh, Bruce, yes. the Bush tax cuts all went to the rich. We all know that. Um, no, they were they were pretty evenly spread across the distribution in percentage um, terms. In percent, yeah, well, that's a little so, secret that doesn't get talked about very much. I just thought I'd, I'd mention that. So. Uh, what I want to start with, there are, of course, other measures of uh, despair that, that the pessimists, I'll, I'll call them the pessimists, the people who think that, that the rich are getting everything, the average person's getting nothing over the last 25 so years. Uh, if you look at hourly wages, 
uh, corrected for inflation. They look pretty flat since about, I think, 1978. Uh, you hear the claim that median income is basically unchanged since 1973. And is, is your basic claim that – I want to push you on what you said a minute sure. ago. So if you, when you say let's start with the correcting for inflation, what, what's wrong with those, those statements? They seem pretty powerful. Uh, they are corrected for inflation, of course, those numbers. They're not nominal income. So if you look at hourly wages reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and median income reported by uh, some folks, um, I assume taken from the Bureau of the Census, uh, it looks pretty dismal. Why is your story better? Well, back in 1996, the Boskin Commission uh, concluded that our main rate of inflation, the CPIU, overstates inflation by about 1.1 percentage points per year at that time. And then historically, they said it overstated inflation even more. And over time, we've made some corrections to how we measure inflation. But uh, the um, commission members, when polled more recently, uh, concluded that still the bias was about 0.7 to 0.9 percentage points per year. Now, why do we not measure inflation well? Well, it's very hard to keep track of new goods and to adjust for the improvements in the quality of goods. Take, for example, cars. The car you drive now, that most people drive now, is nothing like a car of 20 years ago. Um, uh, anti-lock brakes, power windows, power, um, uh, power steering, cup holders, uh, power brakes, more cup holders. I always like to mention cup that. holders. There's all kinds you of know, little. Those are worth everything's something. better. Everything's better. But everything's so much better. Braking, Safer. acceleration. Um, so, but doesn't the BLS try to correct for that using what are called hedonic uh, price indices, or they do they do, not? They do, but they don't do it adequately and it, it's a very hard thing to do and the problem is even more difficult when you think about new goods um, if you think about dvd players cell phones it took the bls 15 years to include cell phones after they were introduced uh what do you mean they weren't in the we should just back up part a of bit. the cpi for a very long time we should back up for a little bit so the, what the bls does is it goes out yes regularly and it tries to measure the prices of a basket of goods that where the weights in the basket are proportional to the spending that people do on these different goods and that when a new good comes along it can't be in the basket the first day obviously because they haven't gone out and surveyed the price of that but you're saying it took 15 years from the introduction of cell phones to where they were even in the basket exactly and that's been historically true that it's been uh, very long before goods have been included. Most, you know, you can look historically, the vast majority of people had electric refrigerators before they were included. Um, you know, used cars weren't included till uh, I think it was the 40s or the 50s. Of course, in the beginning, very few people are buying these goods, but in recent times... The beginning doesn't last very long, so leaving out cell phones for 15 years, you miss a big component of something that's actually falling in price rather dramatically And when it's over those 15 years, I assume. Absolutely. 
Now, the other issue they struggle with, which you mentioned, is quality. So you have, say, um, an iPod, when it's first introduced, I think it was around, I want to say it was around $500. Uh, the iPod that now sells for less than that in actually nominal terms holds multiple numbers of more songs. The battery life is better. It's lighter. It's smaller, et cetera. Do they correct for that at all in the, like the car example you mentioned? You said they did it poorly. Do they do it for, for a good, like an iPod? I know they do it for big items like cars. They try to. Um, you know, I'm actually not sure about iPods. Uh, but in general, they are reluctant to do hedonic corrections because it's, it's a lot of work and there's, there's certainly some, uh, judgment involved. Uh, the preference is to accurately measure what's not quite the right thing. So we might use the word hedonic. That the idea of that is it comes from I think work by Svigrilikas originally, where the idea was to say, well, if, if it's better, it, it's some of the price that's it's for the better good to compare it to the old good. You have to take into the somehow add a dollar figure for the improvement in quality. And there are statistical te- techniques that that help you try to do that. But as you pointed out earlier, it's it's very it's very difficult to do. So given all those those changes, there's also been criticism of the BLS because they've often not surveyed certain retailers such as Walmart and Super Walmarts that were driving down prices and so their, their baskets were not measured correctly. Yeah. Giving that all that's all true. I'm very sympathetic to that argument. What I'm less sympathetic to is how you mechanically or go about logistically correcting the actual numbers. So you said that the, that the members of the commission were surveyed, and they're an illustrious group of, of folks immersed in some very dull and dreary stuff, to be Absolutely. honest, and, and bless them for their diligence. But surveying them and saying, well, we think it's about 0.7 to 0.9, that's kind of just a guess uh, for most of the time. There are people like Mark Bills at Rochester who's done, I think, extremely careful work on manufactured goods showing an actual careful estimate of the bias on one small portion of, of important portion of goods. It's quite significant, and he's tried to correct for those quality changes. But how do you do that in a systematic way without just saying, well, we know that real wages have grown more than the data show? So the... Um there, there are two ways. You can put together a lot of uh, careful studies like the Bills study for particular groups of goods over uh, particular time periods and try and extrapolate from that. And that's basically what the Boskin Commission did in coming up with their numbers. Um, another way is to look at what you would have to adjust incomes by so that spending patterns over time at a given level of adjusted income stay the same. Okay? Now, that's a little bit harder to picture. Yeah, you want to try that Um, again? Sure. (laughs) Um, So the idea is that you think that if people's true incomes were at the same level over time, they would spend about the same share of their income on food and clothing and leisure activities. So 
you look for um, what level you would have to um, adjust uh, income by so that spending patterns stay the same over time. Um, and uh, several people have done that. Uh, Dora Costa right. and uh, Bruce Hamilton and they come up with biases to the CPI that aren't that different from what the Boskin Commission concluded. Well, the, um, the thing I find remarkable about this, by the way, and I just have to get this in because sure. it's so uh, extraordinary. Uh, I, in, one of my reasons for being skeptical of the mainstream standard view now that somehow the average person's made no progress for the last 30 years is I look around. Now, looking yeah. around is dangerous. It, it can yeah. lead to very bad misperceptions. I live in Washington, D.C. area. Washington, D.C. thrives through most recessions. It's thriving through this one. So if I say, well, the recession's not so bad. I went to the mall the other day, and everybody was in there, and it was packed, and stuff was selling out the door. So that's a stupid uh, claim to say that, oh, because I, I looked around and I saw that th- things look pretty good, that this whole recession thing's exaggerated. But when I look back to 1973, when I was alive, and I think yeah. of, and perceptive, meaning per, uh, uh, conscious uh, and aware of stuff, I was 19 years old uh, in 1973. When I, excuse me, I was, um, yeah, I was 19. When I look around at how much the world has changed since 1973, and I see what the, the, as you say, the car the average person drives, the house the average person lives in, the incredible array of goods, the healthcare that's available to so many more people, more people at unbelievably higher quality, the innovation, the revolution in technology and information, and, and you tell me that the average person's not any better off. I start to think, well, maybe there's, maybe there really is something wrong with the data, and yeah. the. The thing that I find so remarkable is the pace of the improvement of daily life is what makes it hard to measure and gives you the impression incorrectly that the average person's falling behind. It's the unbel- people say, well, the fifties and sixties had was more fair. Well, the fifties and sixties were pretty dull and pretty stagnant, and there wasn't a lot of innovation. And your car looked kind of similar at the end of those decades as it had at the beginning, and your refrigerator was kind of similar. Now, ten years go by, and everything's better. And so, people, I think it's incredible that because of that, people are led to the false conclusion that people aren't catching up because they're mismeasuring these things such as inflation. I want to absolutely agree with what you just said, and I think that um, I need to go back a bit and emphasize that you were getting at something right when you said that it's hard to measure how much uh, we overstate inflation in our official price indices. I don't think that... uh, people would universally agree that the Boskin Commission got it exactly right. Uh, we, we don't... There, there is a lot of uncertainty, I think it is fair to say, about what the exact bias in the CPI is. And it probably has varied over time a bit. Sure, no doubt. Uh, but the way that I can also point out that the price indices have to be overstating inflation, is to look at the type of things that you just mentioned. Uh, you can look at the types of houses, say, the bottom 20% live in. The official measures say that the bottom 20% are 
are worse off now than they were um, 30 years ago. The poverty rate now is quite a bit higher, and and even two years ago was quite a bit higher than the official poverty rate of 1980. Uh, But if you look at the bottom 20% of the income distribution in terms of the house they live in, the car they drive, uh, they have things are completely different. They have a dishwasher often. They have a washing machine. They have things that only even an average person didn't have in 1980. So um, in 1980, let me grab the numbers, 27% of those in the bottom 20% of the distribution had central air, whereas in 2009, it was 67%, almost three times the share. So things have dramatically changed. And if you look at numbers for ownership of uh, a dishwasher, a washer, and dryer, those numbers have gone up similarly. But the counter to that is that, okay, you're cherry-picking a few toys, a few electronics, a few convenience items. Those have gotten cheaper, but a lot of important things, housing, healthcare, education, those crucial things, food's gotten cheaper, undeniably. But those big items I just mentioned, which are hugely important, those have gotten a lot more expensive. So just to point out that the poor have more goodies, well, that's just a, you know, that's just, uh, that's an illusion about their improvement. Well, housing is really important. Um, housing is about 40% of consumption uh, for the poor, for the middle class, for people at, at high incomes. Um, and the size of housing units that people live in has gone up dramatically. The other things that we mentioned, air conditioning, uh, that's gone up. You can look at lack of problems like leaks in the roof or in plumbing, and those have almost disappeared. And what about the education and healthcare argument, though? Well, um, healthcare is complicated. Um, we we try and um, stay away from it, actually, in our research because there's less agreement in the profession about how to handle uh, health care. Um, well, the quality it, changes there have been tremendous, it, unlike it, education, it, where it's pretty it, much the yes. same. <laughs> the, the key issue is how to deal with quality. And um, if you look at some things like uh, the access of children to a doctor, that has clearly increased over the last 30 years. Um, so the share of children that have at least an annual checkup has gotten better. But if you look at other measures like the share of people um, at the median income who have insurance, that has gone down um, over time. Uh, so, um, of course, you know, insurance are, isn't all you care about. I mean, the, you care about health care. If, right. if a homeless person has a heart attack on the street in 1980 versus 2011, the medical care he's going to get in the emergency room, which is required by law. This is not a market phenomenon, although it could be if the law didn't require it. We don't know. But the drugs, the treatment, the technology that that person is going to have access to is much, much better today. That's, to me, the fundamental question. 
yeah. what's your access to healthcare now the median that's a little bit depressing right if the median person has less access to all technology say uh artificial knees better treatment for cholesterol that reduces your chance of heart attack various things that improve the quality of life that would be that would be alarming of course it's gotten a lot more expensive per unit for a whole bunch of reasons, many of them driven by bad public policy, in my opinion. But uh, that is a, and something that would offset, if if true, that they they have less access. That would offset some of these gains we're talking about. A- absolutely. Um, so that's something that we cannot speak to um, as much as we'd like. Uh, so I'm going to have to leave that for another guest on on your program to uh, uh, talk about access of the average person to to various uh, treatments, yeah, well, which I, th- I think would be a, a, a terrific topic. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to do that. On the education point, my, my story is that uh, the reason that, that education has got more expensive is that a lot more people have access to it, and they pushed up the price of something that has a relatively uh, inelastic supply, where supply doesn't respond very much, so an increase in demand pushes up price a lot relative to quantity. So we have a lot more people going to high school, going to college, a lot more people going to community college, a lot more people going to graduate school. So of course it's gotten more expensive, but it's not like the average person can't afford it. It's expensive because they can afford it and they pushed up the price. The counter to that is, oh, the only reason they can afford it is debt. And that's, that's another, maybe we'll come to that in a little bit. Um, let's go to the issue you brought up at the beginning about uh, post-tax and pre-tax income. When we look at most of the charts that the Census Bureau puts out, or that uh, or that circulate typically in in newspapers, they're looking at pre-tax uh, income, not post-tax income. They're certainly looking. They're not looking at transfers that people receive in the form of welfare or other things. And we talk about the poverty rate. Uh, we're, we're we're talking about the rate that people are in poverty based on their own earnings, not on what their standard of living is after they've received transfers from the government. How important are those factors? When in your in your conclusion that that the average person's well being has increased by fifty percent, how much of that is an inflation correction, roughly, and how much is the fact that that it we really want to look at post tax income and consumption? Most of it is the inflation adjustment, but it is certainly true at the median that a substantial part of the increase particularly in the 2000s, is due to tax cuts rather than um, uh, uh, just inflation. Now, if you look at those in the bottom 10% or 20%, taxes matter a lot more. Uh, you know, going Transfers, back, not taxes, transfers, I assume. Um, well, changes in... Um, oh, if you go taxes. back, because they, so many of them got taken off the rolls, yeah. Because uh, if you go back to the 60s, we often were taxing people at a 15% marginal rate, uh, even at very low incomes. Uh, and we've raised the exemption. And we've raised the exemption, we've added the earned income tax credit, which transfers... Uh, a huge amount of money to people uh, at the bottom. So um, the combination of tax cuts and expansions of the earned income tax credit have dramatically increased the 
after-tax incomes of the poor relative to the pre-tax incomes. Um, now, one other issue that comes up in these conversations that drives me crazy, uh, but and I don't know if you've dealt with it in your work, but the, when people compare the, the median in, say, 1973 to today – or the bottom 20% or the top 1%. First thing is they're not the same people. Uh, people mm-hmm. move in and out. We, there's a yes. big debate in economics about how much, the, how much movement there is. But when the people talk about how much the top 1% get, they make it sound like it's a, an exclusive club that, that somehow has found a way to extract money from the rest of us, which some part of it is in the form of, of subsidies to farmers and financial institutions, executives, et cetera. But putting that to the side, they're not the same people in 1973 as they are today. People die, there's immigration, but the most imp- and people are born and, and then come, and come into the workforce. But the most important thing that I feel is neglected is that starting around uh, in the 1970s, and it's not a coincidence that this is, to me, when the stagnation supposedly starts, starting in the 70s, a big increase in the divorce rate so when you're doing household analysis, which I know some of your work is based on, mm-hmm. and you're talking about the bottom quintile or the the middle quintile, the people in the uh, 40 to 60 percent of range of the income distribution, you're talking about radically different groups of people who, in other words, who the median is can change dramatically if you add a whole bunch of new households due to divorce. And that median can go down dramatically even though the person who was the median before is doing better. And this statistical paradox is usually ignored by people with an axe to grind who want to sell the story that there's been a lot of stagnation. Uh, do, you cor- do you correct for any of that? We do worry about that quite a bit. So what we do is we um, look at different types of households, um, married uh, parent households, single parent households, single families without kids, uh, married couples without kids, and then households that are headed by someone 65 and older. We also split up the population by race and whether or not uh, the household head is employed and by education. And we look within each of those groups and see if the the distribution has changed within those groups, and then we add up all those changes across the the, the different types of families. Um, and you get a different and, answer when you do it that way versus just lumping everybody together. Um, when you're doing this we kind of quintile that, stuff, that the changes in the types of families that are in the U.S. over time don't play a big part in the changes in median incomes or poverty over time, though you can see um, an effect of increased education, particularly if you look at measures of consumption, because consumption seems to be a little bit more closely associated with improved education than income is. Well, I'm surprised to hear you say that because on the poverty side, at least, because that's something I know just a little about explicitly. Mm-hmm. A uh, study was done. It came out. I can't remember. In the la- it came out in the last few years. I forget the authors. We'll put a link up to. It. I'll uncover it for the for the for the page for this podcast. Sure. But what they found is they they looked at 
poverty rates by family uh, structure, as you just yes. as you just said. They yes. they looked at what's the poverty rate for married people where both people are working. What's the poverty rate for when one person's working? What's the poverty yes. rate for a couple with no children? What's the poverty rate for a single man, single woman, single man with with children, single woman with children? And yes. what they found, and this is again a paradox that people have trouble wrapping their heads around. I'll try to describe it. Yeah. Every single demographic group had dramatic reductions in poverty over a long period of time, say, I think it was 70s through recently, and yet the overall poverty rate went up. So every demographic group, the poverty rate fell, sometimes dramatically, but the overall rate went up. Why? Because the group with the largest proportion, which is uh, which is the, with the highest poverty rate, which is single women with children, that group got bigger. So when you compared a modern poverty rate to the past, the rate went up, even though every single type of family had had a reduction rate. So I find it surprising you don't find a bigger effect. Well, the share of families that are headed by single mothers hasn't gone up that much in the last 10 years. Uh, ten years. Yeah. No, most of the change was before, 70s yeah. and 80s. So... Um, you know what you're describing could be true more historically. Um, what we do see is that there are groups that have had their poverty decline much uh, faster than others. So um, those that are headed by those households that are headed by someone 65 and older have had their poverty decline much faster than the overall population. That's also true for single mother-headed households. On the other hand, um, married couples with children, their poverty rate hasn't declined as fast as that of other groups. And that's even more true if you look at their spending patterns. You look at what they're consuming rather than their income. And is over what time period is that, roughly? That's uh, since 1980. Okay, well, that's interesting. Well, I'm, I have to dig deeper into what into your work on that. I'm looking looking forward to. No, and I and I would also like to take a careful look at the uh, studies that you have in mind. Yeah, I'll, I'll send the link to you and to uh, uh, to our audience. Um, let's talk about uh, consumption now. It, for the first, I'd say, punchline of your story is that when you correct for inflation. You do it correctly, even when you're looking at different people over time, you're looking at snapshots rather than panel data where you're following people over time. The middle class stagnation that we hear a lot about is not is not real. There's quite a bit of improvement. Why do you also look at consumption and what does that tell you? What are you looking for there and what are some of the findings? Well, there are two reasons to look at consumption. There's the standard economic argument that one year's income is not really a good measure of a family's well-being because families save um, for a rainy day and they may have a period where their income is low, but they're able to consume because they've saved. If you think about older Americans, that that idea becomes particularly important because the uh, uh, retired households, will often have very little new income, but may be consuming out of their past savings. They may also own a house, own a car. In fact, more than 80% of households headed by someone 65 and older own their own house, um, own 
own at least one car. Some of them shouldn't and, be driving that car, but you know, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but they're out there. My yeah. my parents eighty. They're eight, my dad's eighty one. He still drives. Yes, I'm glad. Um, it's a little scary though. Um. So leaving leaving uh, that issue aside, which is real, um, uh, it's clear that the incomes of those who are retired is not a good measure of their well-being because of the ability to draw on savings, because they get a flow of resources from assets they own, like homes and cars. Um, now, that's the standard reason for looking at consumption. But when you're looking at people at the bottom, which we do in in quite a few of our studies, um, their incomes are very complicated. There is a wonderful study of single mothers by Eden and Lane that talks about their various sources of income. And there's formal work, there's informal work, there's money that is given to them from family, from friends, from boyfriends, from uh, fathers of children that may no longer be boyfriends. Um, and uh, with all those sources, and then in addition, money from government transfers, it's much harder to respond in a survey to what your income is. On the other hand, these same people do a pretty good job of reporting what their rent is, what they're spending in a given week on food, so that looking at consumption can give you a better idea of what certainly people at the bottom are um, able to do in terms of their living standard. Now, there also is the issue that our surveys have to try and get people to give out information that they're not always so eager to give out. Um, when you ask people about their income, they often won't uh, respond to uh, the survey um, if, if they know they're going to be asked about income questions. When you get to income questions, they're less, less willing to answer those questions, and they often don't give you um, a very accurate answer. So I've spent a fair amount of time looking at the accuracy of the responses in the main survey that we use to collect information on income and inequality, which is called the Current Population Survey. And if you match the um, data from this survey to the government reports of how much they've paid out in food stamps, for example, the survey only captures about half of what's paid out. Hmm. Interesting. So that, you know, it's not that um, people necessarily are ashamed of the fact that they re receive food stamps. It's just that um, it makes it a lot quicker uh, to respond to the survey if you just don't uh, start to uh, talk about um, all of the benefits that you received from the government and how much you received and what months you received them. Uh, 
So our surveys are doing a poor job of capturing some of the government transfers that people at the bottom receive. So you try to correct for that, and what's the implication? What do you find uh, that, that might be easy to summarize? That if you look at trends in consumption over the last 10 years at the bottom, uh, the rate of poverty indicated by what people are consuming has gone down a lot faster than a rate based on income. In fact, the official income measure says that poverty has gone up over the last 10 years. Now, admittedly, the last three years have just been awful, and we would expect poverty to have gone up. But over the longer term, uh, we, um, you know, if uh, looking at other measures like the types of housing people live in, the types of cars they drive, it suggests that people at the bottom uh, have seen an improvement in their living standard over the long term. Now, what is the role of debt? We, I mentioned it earlier. It's one sure. of the things that there's actually, a, again, a, 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 a meme that's circulating I find disturbing, but it's commonly argued now that the reason we had such a bad um, set of times over the last 10 years is that uh, people saw their income stagnating and they had to, to borrow to live better. Uh, usually that's not a very good strategy. Um, so I find it bizarre. Usually you find out very, it's hard to get people to lend you money. Now in the last 10, 15 years, the U.S. government has tried to make it as easy as possible to lend money to, to, to borrow money to buy a house. Yeah. Uh, and that I think was a disastrous public policy. We've talked about it many times on the program. But just when we think about consumers going into debt to raise their standard of living, how common a phenomenon is that and how does that uh, distort attempts to measure consumption as a measure of material well-being? So I think that's a real issue, particularly when you're talking about median incomes. When you look at people near the poverty line, they're not doing a lot of borrowing. Um, So Debt is not a big part of the increase in consumption at the bottom. Um, What about the median, though? For the median, I think that that's more of a real issue. Um, And you can see that in the last uh, couple years, consumption has gone down. As people have uh, had to pay back debts, um, they've also been worried about the state of the economy yep. uh, and their incomes have fallen. So um, you see a decline in the last few years. Um, and, you know, m- my take on this is, you know, you could look at income, you could look at consumption, but consumption shows you what people were consuming in the good times and if in the bad times they have to repay debts, if they are worried about the future, then they're not going to be consuming, and you also want to look at that. Well, I want to turn now to inequality. Uh, we've been talking about sort of the average level of how people are doing, whether they're above or below poverty, how well is the median done over time. I want to turn to inequality. Before we do, I just want to mention that the study I've been referring to about po- by, on poverty is is by – 
Hoynes Page and Stevens. Yeah. And the Journal of Economic Perspectives, we'll put a link up to it, although it will probably be gated. But what they found that was so remarkable is that every single demographic group, uh, their poverty rate fell by double digits in percentage terms. And, and almost every one of them fell, other than single men, it fell by 20% or more. But the overall poverty rate fell by about 4%. And that's because the, high, the group with the highest poverty rate, single women, had grown. This is 67 to 2003 which is, again, sort of capturing this era of, of alleged uh, stagnation. And again, for me, the crucial question is, you know, does a rising tide lift all boats? Between 1967 and 2003, GDP per capita, any measure of our economy, grew dramatically. The idea that it wouldn't reduce poverty would be very depressing about the state of the American economy. And I think it's somewhat distorted by the demographic changes, dramatically distorted, actually, uh, that, that happened over that time period. But, but let's turn to inequality, which is the other issue you hear a lot about, that the gap between the top and the bottom is growing, uh, that, the get, that the top get your, – your claim is that the, the argument that the top get all, have gotten all the gains of the last 30 years, which, which again, you hear all the time, that between, between 1980 and the present or 1990 and the present, the average person got none of the gains. They all went to the rich. The richest share grew, et cetera, et cetera. Your claim is that those statements – are, are wrong because of mismeasured inflation and and a focus perhaps on uh, pre-tax income. But what about the inequality ratio between, say, the, the top 90% and the bottom 10 or the top 1% sh- share of income? What has your work uh, been on that? So we've focused on the difference between the 90th percentile and the median and the median and the 10th percentile um, we um, haven't looked at the top one percent, so I can't really speak to speak to that. Um, what we find is that um, in the last thirty years, um, there was this period uh, in the eighties where there was a very big increase in inequality, no matter how you measure it. Um, whether you look at income, whether you look at consumption, whether you look at pre-tax or after-tax income, uh, the late 70s, early 80s were bad for inequality. But since then, um, the picture when you measure things better, when you look at after-tax income, or better yet, when you look at consumption, uh, things aren't as bad for the bulk of the, aren't that bad for the bulk of the population. So the difference between the 90th percentile and the 10th um, has grown um, a little bit over time since the uh, late 80s, but not a lot. And if you look at the bottom half of the distribution, say the 10th percentile relative to the 50th, the 10th has grown relative to the 50th. Over most of that time. When you say growing, you mean their standard of living has gotten closer to the median? Their standard of living has gotten closer to the median. Um, and that's um, particularly true in the last 10 years. So um, there has been an improvement in the uh, living standards at the 10th percentile relative to the 50th. Now, there's still been some slight worsening of the median relative to the 90th uh, in, in recent years, but it's been, it's been slow. 
Yeah, my, my claim is that it's the, the average person has no idea unless they look at the data where they are yeah. exactly and, and, and whether they should be depressed because it went up a percentage point or two. What I found striking about the, the charts in your papers is how small the changes are compared to what you hear. Uh, and I think it, it's be useful for people to check those out and see and see what those magnitudes are because they're, they're relatively small. Well, uh, a big part of that at the bottom is, as I mentioned earlier, our tax system has moved towards um, not taxing people with very low incomes who work, but instead providing them a work subsidy through the earned income tax credit. And that has met a big increase in the 10th percentile of income. Now, that's true of the income tax, but they do pay a healthy amount of payroll tax as a percentage of their income because it's a flat tax. And those rates have risen over time, right? Yes, they have. So you take that into account? We do. So we take into account federal and state income taxes and payroll taxes. Now, you said that the 80s, late 70s, I think, and 80s, you said there was a relatively large change in income increase in income inequality. Uh, you want to speculate about why that is? Um, there's been a lot of um, – most people just talk about inequality as if it's a some inexorable fact of life. But the level of inequality emerges from a complex process. Some of the reasons it emerges are good. Uh, I always use the example of Sergey Brin and – uh, Larry Page, they found Google and they make our lives better and they vault into the, they go from being graduate students and unemployed probably for a while to being in the top 1%. And more power to them, I say. Not power, but more, more well-being to them because they've made my life and others much better off. They haven't captured nearly all of it. Uh, and then there's the kind that's not so good, which is, to me, bailouts of Wall Street or subsidies to, to rich farmers. Um, there's other things going on at the same time. Any thoughts on... On, on those large trends? Um, so there's, there's been some work on, uh, on the increase in inequality, and a, a fair amount of it has been attributed to changes in the um, demand for uh, high-skilled labor and um, the, the failure of us to supply enough um, uh, high-skilled labor at the times when demand for it was increasing. Um, there, there are also other stories. Um, you know, a- around that time, uh, there were um, uh, there was little increase in the the minimum wage, which can um, decrease. Um, inequality um, if in, in certain circumstances. Yeah, if you don't measure unemployed people also as zeros, which we don't in the data, so it's a little bit misleading. Well, um, uh, if you're looking at income, then you are capturing that. So there is some evidence to suggest that, you know, even though minimum wages uh, will have disemployment effects and other negative consequences. Um, they are associated with some uh, uh, improvement in uh, inequality in some circumstances. 
Okay, fair enough. Um, and um, uh, at that time, we also had very high inflation. Um, the early 80s, some people have suggested that that could be uh, part of the story. Um, I don't think we we fully know what was behind the increase in inequality that seems to be so focused on those years. Well, a couple things I think um, could mention that I one of which is standard, but one part of it's not. The other part you hear is globalization, and yes. it's not just an. Inc- you mentioned that change in relative demand for high school versus low skill. One of the reasons that low skill have been in less demand in the United States is that many of the things they produce are being produced overseas. They now are competing with workers that are cheaper than they are, and that pushes down, puts down our pressure on their wages. Um, there's also technological change, which has made low-skill workers, they're in competition with machines. And so when people talk about loss of manufacturing jobs, they often forget that a lot of that comes from productivity increases. We don't need as many people to make stuff anymore, uh, which is a good thing, as is globalization. They're both the same thing. They're both forms of, of productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, our school system is so uh, mediocre, our K through 12, it, it's perhaps not surprising that in the face of that tremendous change of globalization, it hasn't responded very vigorously in how it treats people who struggle to go on to college. If anything, it's done a, done a worse job for them. So that's part of the problem. So most of this, over most of this period, we don't see much of an increase in inequality. Um, so I don't think that globalization or immigration are uh, the, uh, the the threats to um, our standard of living that some people have claimed. And you're saying that because in this time of of increased immigration and globalization, yes, the it's the it's the earlier data. Yeah, but, it's, yeah, it's the late seventies, early eighties, where there was a sharp increase in inequality. Not in the last uh, twenty years, certainly. When, if anything, the pace of globalization and immigration have gotten more intense. Yes, that's interesting. It's a it's a really interesting interesting point. So, is your now, you said you st- you don't look a lot at the top 1%. They're in the news right now. We're, we're not going to go into why they're in the news, but we're at a time in September of 2011 where people are talking about raising taxes on the top 1% because they earn so much money, and mm-hmm. they do. Uh, again, some for good reasons sometimes and sometimes for not so good reasons. But having focused on the 90-10, you're arguing that, that the – this, these standard stories are 90-50, the comparison of the 90th percentile of the median. These standard stories that that there's been this big gap in in well-being between the average person and the people at the upper end is exaggerated. Is that fair? It is absolutely fair. So what uh, are those other studies doing wrong, if you disagree? Well, um, if you look at uh, the 90-50 uh, for one, um, and if you look at at earnings, um, even in the in the last uh, twenty years, you don't see that big an increase in inequality. Um, and you see compression 
in the bottom half of the distribution. So the 10th percentile is rising a bit relative to the 50th. So um, I think, so part of it is that people are focusing on the top 1%. Another thing is people um, are focusing on the earlier years, the 80s, um, if it's true that if you look after tax, things look better, uh, but still, even pre-tax, it, the increase in inequality is not that sharp in the last 20 years, leaving aside the, the top 1%, uh, which I'm not going to uh, you know, really be able to speak to. Yeah, well, the top, um, the top 1% are, a lot of them are entertainers, Movie stars, uh, mm-hmm. sports figures, people who've been able to leverage their skills in dramatic ways because of improvement in technology, and they're more valuable than they used to be, which is just fine with me. Uh, it includes people who are great entrepreneurs. It, it, it includes, of course, people who, again, who earn money because they are being uh, subsidized. Uh, our industry, education, is highly subsidized in direct and indirect ways. Uh, when I get depressed about Wall Street, I, I'm slightly consoled by the fact that that the subsidies to borrowing and lending on Wall Street by large financial institutions increase the demand for academic economists. And I'm, you and I are probably the beneficiaries of that indirectly. I'm not proud of it, but it's it, it helps me sleep better at night. But uh, so it's true. And one, the top one percent, there's a lot of drama there, inevitably. Um, but the but, but your point is that is that we need. Take a, a sober, a more sober look at the at the non rarity, the rare, not the rarefied air of the top one percent. It's it's not as the glass is half full. I encourage people to look at the diagrams in your papers. We'll put links to those on the web. They'll give you a feel for what Bruce means when he says relatively small. Do you want to try to quantify? The, it's hard to describe. Obviously, the charts does is better than a thousand words, but do uh, you want to try to give a feel for what the magnitudes are when you say it hasn't increased very much or it's it's pretty flat? Okay, let me see if I can. Um, if you look at, uh, say, after-tax income um, inequality, say the... Um, Ninety ten um, ratio. Um, it's about the same now. Um, well, in in oh nine, um, as it was in nineteen ninety three. Well, that's surprising. Um, yeah, and it did um, go down a little bit in the in the 90s and then came up a little bit in the recession of 2001, 2002. Um, but it's, it's almost the same level as it was um, in the early 90s. Which I think would surprise many people. And that's, you know, that's accounting for taxes. Um, and a significant part of that is that the 10th percentile when you account for taxes, has um, has uh, done quite well. The top half of the distribution, the ratio of the 90th to the 50th, that still has gone up. 
uh, and by how over much, the last roughly? 20 years. By how, um, what's the magnitudes? So let me stare at the... Um, so the ratio of the 90th to the 50th stood at around two and a half um, around 1990, and it's now more like 2.75. I'd call that a relatively small increase, right? So, An increase, but yes, it's not what I think the average person would say, given what they hear uh, hear all the time. So uh, that's... It, um, it's very different from what you hear about the top 1% or the top 10th of 1%. Or the CEOs of the Fortune 500. They've, they've made a yes. lot more money than they did before. Some Again, some for good reasons, some maybe less. So they, they run much larger organizations than they used to, um, which is, you know, there's some research on that. But it's, it's an interesting... It's an interesting question. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, do you want to say anything about, you know, we've talked a lot about numbers, which is you have to when we have these kind of discussions. You want to talk about what you think might be done to make uh, America a, a more healthy place to seek opportunity, which is what I care about. Uh, the numbers are important. They're in debate all the time. They're relevant. They matter. But under what I really care about ultimately is – whether my children, grandchildren, and your children and grandchildren, and somebody who's uh, not doing as well as we are, their children and grandchildren, um, whether they're going to get ahead or not, whether they have a chance to dream and achieve and, and do things. That's really what I care about. Um, what policies or um, issues might be relevant for that, that issue? Well, I, I think we want to focus on the fact that long-term growth has been pretty widely distributed and that we should keep our eye on the ball on what will continue to uh, keep economic growth um, at high. Um, and we want to distinguish between policies that may be appropriate for a recession and policies that are focused on, on um, long-term growth, uh, because those may, be, those may be different policies, um, and we don't want to justify um, certain things because uh, of false claims that the growth rate over the last 30 years in, in incomes uh, has... Uh, been been small um, incomes have risen when properly measured a lot over the last thirty years, and we shouldn't use false claims of of stagnation to uh, justify things like closing the borders to uh, goods and and immigrants. My guest today has been Bruce Meyer. Bruce, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.